0: From Hong Kong, this is Maya Koopa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based upon the postmodern conference where founders, investors, and lawyers and mentors share their stories about working on, with or for startups. Today, we have Sam Gelman. Sam, previous banker, uh, joined Uber and after that started his own counseling and coaching practice and he was also an investor. Uh, welcome, Sam.
1: Uh, thanks, Jeffrey. Good to be here.
0: Uh, Sam, can you tell me, How did you end up from basically a banker into a startup? Sure.
1: So I worked at Goldman Sachs for about uh, seven and a half years. And I think, well, I I guess before Goldman Sachs, I I went to Stanford. So I had a little, and my first job at Goldman Sachs was in San Francisco. So I graduated in 2004, kind of right when Facebook and Google were getting up and running. I shouldn't say up and running, but kind of close to going public in Google's case, and Facebook was getting up and running. Um, so I, I had friends who worked at those companies, so kind of always had a bit of an eye at the Silicon Valley world. Um, but during Goldman Sachs had a great career there for over seven years, really loved it. It brought me out to Asia where I worked for, for more than five years. But I think when I was at Goldman Sachs, I just always felt like I was in the wrong seat. I was a, a research analyst writing research reports and it just, while being at that company was fun, I had a great boss. I got to travel a lot. Um, I, I didn't want to kind of, keep climbing the ladder as a research analyst. Um, so I started looking for other things, uh, stumbled into interviews with uh, with with Uber. I also was interviewing with Airbnb, a few other startups that were kind of up and coming at the time, and um, somehow just got, got quite lucky and, and job at, at Uber. As at the time, you know, there were only 30, 35 employees, so I, I was really quite lucky to get there early. And,
0: and, and at Uber, what was your first role?
1: Uh, my, one of the funny things about these, these companies is you, you, you think you have a title when you're going in and the day you get there, you realize that that title is just kind of hocus pocus, um, and your job is to go do whatever they tell you to. So my original job was meant to be to kind of launch the business in Asia, hire people in Asia to, to, to run Uber. But my first two years, actually, I was spent launching the business. Um, my first role was launching London, uh, so yeah, I the CEO and the COO and the head of engineering all flew to London and I met them there. And we had one guy from the UK who had been hired. Um, and then my job was to basically set the business up, hire a team. And then on. And the next city I launched was Amsterdam, which became the international headquarters for Uber. Uh, so the first year and a half was basically. And then after that, kind of that role, launching Asia happened. And then I launched that. And then I launched Shanghai and built a team of launchers who launched other cities in Asia,
0: Okay, and I can understand right it's a startup uh, probably at that point there was an investment round and then they say like okay we, we go to Europe uh, and we go to London that was your first city uh, some of the startups that are listening to this podcast uh, yeah uh, they also might want to uh, plan a go-to-market uh, strategy how, how, how did that work like in practical terms like you just took a plane to London uh, booked a hotel room and you started Calling drivers, or like, how how were your first steps on, on practically doing that?
1: Pretty much, um, you know, my my girlfriend at the time lived in London. She's now my wife, uh, so I lived with her. Um, but I think the normal step would be, uh, you know, book an economy flight to wherever you're going, get an Airbnb, and you know, we maxed out at the time at like three grand a month. Um, and uh, and for me, a lot of it, I'd say, there were kind of you know, get an office, you know, for Uber, there was a lot of that kind of a lot of that technical stuff. But then the two big things were one, really digging into my network to make hires. Um, So yeah, I think at that stage of my life, I like Uber, like owned my social media. I don't mean literally they own my social media, but like, if I was on social media, I was probably talking about Uber. And I was making, I was like really identifying, you know, my whole, my whole person with Uber, trying to get other people excited about Uber. Uh, it was not a very well-known company at the time. So you'd go into new cities and everyone would tell you you would fail. And your job was to get people excited. Um, one of the people I hired was my best friend from Wisconsin, you know, the small state I grew up in. He had spent a year abroad in London. And his friend, when he was there, had a little brother who ended up getting a job at Uber. you know. And the only reason that we were able to make those hires was because... I mean, you know, my friend, I gave my friend enough material that he could email his friend and be like, oh, these guys are hiring that, you know, and you just wanted to create viral content or it wasn't even viral, just stuff that people wanted to um, to get those hires done. So that was one piece. And then the second piece was, yeah, it was, you'd call the limo companies and, you know, we would go outside of the clubs that drivers would stay up, you know, late at night and try to get those guys to work on Uber and their, so, you yeah, know, every company is so different, but for for Uber the way we operated, a lot of it was literally looking up companies and then going to the nightclubs or the hotels and finding guys in parking lots and just trying to. Um, as Uber progressed over time, um, this was back in 2012. Um, as Uber progressed over time, Uber became Uber became much more about kind of online advertising and other probably more scalable ways to build, to build out. But at the time, it was very much like feed up.
0: Okay. Okay, things like labor law, that kind of things. How did you prepare yourself for that, or you didn't prepare or like like how how did that work in practice?
1: um at the time um at the time, we had what was called a green light process. So before you'd go into a city, actually at the time maybe we didn't at the time but pretty early on, you'd have we had what was called a green light process where people or someone would go into a city and try to understand where Uber came down legally. Uh, for all the different things that we did. So labor law was one thing, but a much bigger thing was, you know, are our limousines even legal? You know, in many places, only taxis are allowed to deport people for money. Uh, or, you know, like in Germany at the time, if a limous- if, if a non-taxi was going to drive you for money, there was a law that between every trip, so if they take you to the airport, they had to return back to the garage that the car was based between every single trip. Um, in Florida, when we were getting launched, um, uh, there was a rule that if you were going to book a non-taxi for private transportation, you had to book more than 45 minutes in advance. So you know, diff- it just was very luck of the draw. Every city had different rules that were in place, largely to protect the taxi industry or to differentiate the limo industry from the taxi industry. So a lot of it was knowing what those rules were. Now, London, I think, was an easier place because there was a company called Addison Lee, which was very, very big. And they basically did what Uber did, so it was so a lot of Uber just became kind of Addison Lee. Just, I think that we were able to push them aside because we just had a much much better user interface and a much easier relationship with drivers. And I think they had, I think they were kind of stuck in a monopoly and didn't innovate or care about customer service as much. And I think that really left a gap for Uber to come in. But I, because Addison Lee was already established, I think that, that that actually gave us an opportunity. A lot of kind of the regulatory sort of kind of figured out, although I know that London since then. I'm, I'm speaking as Uber 2012, 20 cars on the road, no one uses us. I know that since then everything has changed and uh, I can't speak to that because I, I haven't worked at Uber for the past two and a half years.
0: Okay, okay. I, I, I can understand that. Can you make an educated guess in the amount of people that you say, like hired as staff for Uber, but also the amount of drivers that you onboarded?
1: Sure. So I, I mean, one of the things that was very, and I think this is an interesting thing. Like Uber had a really hard time hiring senior people, um, like hiring really senior managers. I think was hard because everyone like me. So I was kind of part of this class of employees who were, you know, we were. I was I was thirty years old when I started. I had worked at Goldman Sachs for seven years. Um, a lot of my colleagues had business school degrees or worked at Bain. Um, but still, when we were getting hired, you had to go on the ground. Go to the clubs, go to the hotels, find the drivers, onboard the drivers, teach them about Uber, and really be on this one to one relationship with drivers um so you know most cities I would probably do like a hundred drivers per city i'd one of the things when we started, you'd only hire three people per city, so I think that was one thing about Uber' is like we were big into just three people in every city, and those three people had full ownership so it was a there was a real empowering feeling I think for the staff, and I thought it was super effective in those early um But one of the things that was harder, you know, we'd bring on senior executives from Expedia, all these like very, very senior executive or very, very senior kind of established companies. And it would be really hard for them to win people over because they didn't know how to onboard drivers. They didn't have that on the ground experience. And that was kind of interestingly still uh, two of the very most senior people at the company, Uh, head of rides and head of eats, the number one people, probably, I think they're both reporting directly to CEO, started as the general manager for Toronto and the general manager for Paris, onboarding drivers themselves. So there's a real culture at Uber of people kind of starting, really getting to know those customers in the early days. And it was very hard to layer someone like that with someone who did not have that experience.
0: Okay, I I can imagine at one point that you kind of maybe like a playbook for uh, opening cities. Uh, Was it also one of your responsibilities or was it done by somebody else and you at one point just got that playbook?
1: Yeah, so when I, when I got there, I had you know, launched London, which was probably the eighth or ninth city. So we had already launched Los Angeles, Seattle, Chicago, uh, obviously San Francisco, New York City, uh, Washington, D.C., Boston. So there, you know, we'd already been in a few cities, and I was probably the fourth or fifth launcher heard. So we already had a playbook. Um, at the time, it all existed on Asana. And I'd say that Uber culture at that time, you know, when there were probably 35 employees, was and I'm sure this. Yeah, I don't think we use Asana anymore. I think we has evolved, but was very playbook oriented. And you know, in the playbook that Asana checklist was kind of how you'd communicate with your manager. So I reported to the COO at the time, and later I reported to the the Asana playbook was the way you'd communicate. They, you know, if the head of if the COO in San Francisco wanted to see what was going on in London, the first thing they would do is is look at Asana. And if you, you know, and there were four or five of us doing this. So if you had suggestions for ways to improve you could just adjust that template but it was extremely playbook oriented it was people were really held to task if they did not keep it updated if they did not market and that was hard for me because I was not a super organized guy so uh, yeah it was pretty uh, that was a, a challenge at times
0: yeah, talking about that you say you're not a, a very uh, organized guy what was in the beginning years for you personally the the biggest challenge of doing that what was it the things that you struggled the most with and maybe learned afterwards or maybe didn't even learn at all. But like, what, what was it? Yeah, I think there were kind of two kinds of
1: launchers. You know, there were some who were extremely playbook oriented, extremely good at just living in that checklist. And every morning and every night before they'd go to bed, they would be in that checklist. And I, I think that those guys were extremely effective. Um, and I think that for me, it was a little tougher. Sometimes I'd fall asleep without going back in the chest. And I was a bit more, you know, I think my skills was more in networking my way into hires and networking my way into different influencers we could kind of be advocates for Uber uh and constantly I was just constantly working I lived and breathed the job but I was a little bit less married to the checklist and I think that that for my managers was harder and I think uh you know I think that that made it I think that that there were just kind of two types and I think guys like me were um were fine but you know I think I think the more disciplined guys were maybe a little bit easier to work
0: with okay Okay. So so in
1: retrospect, I probably wish I could have been a bit more married to that. But I I also think at some level, you have to understand your personality. You know, and like I I was it it was not for lack of trying or for lack of hustle. It was just um, my personality was just very different than some of these like super disciplined, you know. And the good thing about the launch role was that there was kind of as long as you didn't forget things checked all the, the boxes at the end of the day you could get it and I think uh, the launches that I went did went pretty well
0: how much say love and passion did you have for that particular role
1: it was it was extremely fun you know I'd say like this is kind of like I think for like 20% of the population out there this is the dream job you know you you have no roots you get on an airplane you're working for this brand that's kind of up and coming. Uh, you know that's not very familiar and you get to go to countries all over the world and launch it you know for some people it's just like ah there's like no structure there's no roots i don't know anybody i don't want to like but i think there is a personality type for whom it is a job and for me when i was 30 years old that this was like a job and i loved it i think by i started getting more uh getting more serious with my with my girlfriend at the time who's not my wife and i think i started feeling after 2 years was a bit more ready to to kind of build a, a bit more roots in one place, but um, for the two years I did it, it was it's probably my favorite career experience in my life It was
0: do you think that the person who hired you at at Uber at that point when there were thirty five people already saw that in you as a personality trait or uh, uh, basically at that point your first uh, uh week on the job they said hey this th- this person is great in doing that. Let's put him in that role
1: hmm. The way that Uber hired, you know, I think they did a lot, you know, and I don't know if this is the right way to hire, but I think the fact that I had gone to Stanford and worked at Goldman Sachs, um, I think that kind of helped get me at the table for better or for worse. You know, you can have a conversation about whether that could filter. But then after that, they have an analytical exercise you have to do, um, where they send you a spreadsheet and ask you all sorts of questions about Uber's data. You had two hours to do it, and a lot of people failed that test, but... And then they also had this creative test you had to do. You had to write blogs and create some sort of creative design. And I think that those two kind of silos, creative and analytical, were like the way that they evaluated people. Um, and I passed both of those. So I, you know, when they, when, once you pass both of those, and once you got along in the interviews, they, like they hired you. I, I, my interview process was two and a half weeks versus i had been interviewing at Airbnb for six months. Uh, so I, I think they were very like tied to those two things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, all, all the characteristics that I'm talking about as far as like being a good networker and being someone who, uh, you know, was entire, entirely passionate about the role or even being less good at Asana than they probably hoped. I don't think they really filtered forward in the process as much, but maybe they sensed a little bit of kind of that personality in, uh, in, the, in the conversations we had
0: and uh, if you now look back on uh, on those two years of 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 lang uh what was probably the the easiest city for you to live hmm or were there I, no easy cities
1: I mean nothing's ever easy uh but yeah so i i, I wouldn't call any of them easy cuz every you know i'd say in every single city we went into everyone tells you you're going to you know that's just it's that was so consistent and it didn't matter where you went. We don't need you. And to be fair to those people, they had been living their life without you forever. So they're like, my life seems all right right now. We don't have you. And, you know, so that was a very consistent thing. I'd, I'd say probably the one that maybe was the less challenge, least challenging was Singapore only because we'd uh, been there. It was my third, no, we had it, but it was my third city and kind of gotten the hang of things you know, a lot of English in the city. And it, I found that English-speaking countries were more likely to pick up the press from the U.S. and see us as a bit of kind of like a cool company to associate with, which we kind of were, I guess, back in. Um You know, Singapore already had a bit of an established kind of higher car situation, so we weren't all right. Um, you know, but it was, it, the rain in Singapore can really rotation, so you had these like pockets of service. Um, so it's, maybe that was a little easier, but n- none of them were easy. You're kind of starting from scratch and it's it Maybe it's more, I just got used to it by that
0: point. Okay. And what was the hardest cookie to crack? Nicholas? What was the toughest decision you had to make at one point?
1: I mean, Shanghai, like going into China was probably one China, I remember they had, like, sort of weird kind of blocks on Google Maps, your location, and our app was very, very reliant. Um, obviously, you know, doing the app in a whole new alphabet, uh, the regulatory framework there to understand, just being a place where where the language is so different, the regular, the companies are so you know, I, I'd say that was all quite challenging. Although for what I did, which was go get it to a place where kind of foreign-friendly, in, in the city we're using Uber, I didn't have to deal with a lot of those extremely difficult. Um, but yeah, I mean, China was always a very different cookie to cut relative to the other cities.
0: Okay. And then along the way, of course, you you got probably a huge network. Uh, so I can also at that point understand that at one point, the Airbnb was just knocking on the door to to get you. Instead of six months whole interview process, there was just like, hey, here's already your contract. Like, how did you at that point probably were able to withstand that that uh, attractiveness of of going somewhere else? On um, the way that <coughs> sorry. The way that kind of Silicon Valley works is they give you
1: uh that, you know your options vest over four years and there's a life normally. At least this is the way it was until twelve. Um and when I joined the company, you know, the career evaluation, and within a year, we raised money at three and a half billion. The options had already 10 xed, and then, you know, a company dollar evaluation. So I'd say that the management at Uber, um, Travis, and, and in charge of like fundraising, were extremely good. You, at that point, you just weren't going to leave because years. Um, so I'd say that was the big thing, you know, and I, you yeah, know, I mean, when I joined at Uber, there were the 40 or so employees, of the people who were there when I joined, only one still works there. So I, There is a big, you know, so keeping talent for four years is extremely easy, I, I think, companies, but keeping them longer than four years is a bit more of a challenge. Uh, you do see serious turnover, uh, you know, which may be a good thing. Like maybe companies have gone through that initial growth stage, you you want to bring on different types.
0: Okay. Is there any advice you could give to a, uh, a startup that's now looking for a go-to market, maybe somewhere in Asia, maybe some uh, general things that you said, okay, at least have this and this and this in place. So at that point, then it will make your life easier. Uh, I don't know, uh, sometimes you hear hire local staff or do everything on the ground locally and not remote. Like that kind. Of thing. Is there anything that you could at that point uh, share?
1: Sure, um, you know I, I think giving advice is hard, but I, I can say like what our experience was. One thing that I think is very important or was very important for us is to get our first city right. kind of, I think you know, Uber was a company that scaled these extremely quickly, but we did not move into our second city, I believe for like 12 months I don't know, but we certainly had to make sure this business worked in San Francisco and that we understood the business well and that it was like the model we wanted before we launched New York or before we launched Seattle or cities. So I think that that's really important. Is I think there there can be a lot of pressure to just be cities, but unless you really know what a good city looks like and what the other cities are shooting for, I I, I think you want to hold off on getting others. So I think you really want to get that that example of what a great success looks like before you go into two. So that's one piece. Um, as far as hiring locally, you know, I think that's it can be incredibly difficult. You know, it can be incredibly difficult to. To get someone who understands your culture, your values, the way, and someone who like is deep culture as well. But when you can find that person, that's great, really helpful. Uh, but I wouldn't say that that I wouldn't like an Uber. I think there were people who were not local who were. And I think there were people who were local who were also very successful. I think one that probably was less successful was when you got someone who was very local and who really did not, and who wanted to, uh, who had a hard time agreeing to the way Uber was run and would say, all right, like this place is very, very different. You have to understand like that this is not how, how companies work. You can't operate this way. They may have been right, but it ended up just not working with our management. Like there'd be disagreements between management and them and that those were very difficult to resolve sometimes. So I think having someone who was fully on board and like before starting was like, I really get how Uber is and I wanna I wanna be part of that. Like that was very important. So I don't know, I, I've seen both local as well as like, you know, the guy who ran California for us was British, you know, our first general manager in the UK was American, like, you know, and, and you know, in, in a lot of cases, those situations, you know, but certainly the ability to know how things get done in a city, I think is way really
0: important. Mm-hmm. And then you already said, like after a couple of years opening new cities, uh, I also know you have a passion is photography. So at one point, you even correct me if I'm wrong, became the head of photography within Uber, and you traveled around the world to make series from drivers and and staff, right? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. How did that came to fruition? Like, it, it, was it something that you really wanted to do, or was it something that was asked from Uber for you to do?
1: Uh, sure. So I I think it was probably after about four and a half years ago, five years, yeah, four and a half years. Um, so after launching, I became the general manager for like Hong Kong, Taiwan, Macau. Um, and we got a head of Asia who I reported to. And the, kind of the, the organization in Asia became hundreds and hundreds of years. Um And it was just, it was an environment that I, I enjoyed. I still liked it. I, I got along with the people I worked with who worked for me. And I thought it was fun, but it just wasn't, it it, it was just so different from the Uber that started when I got there. And I I would say for me, like we hired the head of marketing and the head of uh, policy from Google. Like it really started to get a much more of a, of kind of a big company feel, which was a necessary transition for the company and needed to do that. But it was a little bit less kind of where I felt like I was enjoying myself. So I had always been passionate about photography. Um, as someone who had like operate in all these cities, I knew that Uber's photography was not very good. Uh, what I mean by that is if you wanted to launch a Facebook ad that had like a driver that looked like he worked in Hong Kong, like it was very, very hard to find that photo to put on that ad. If you wanted to do a billboard campaign, yeah, you know, what ended up happening, you know, it would be very hard to find the photos. It, what ended up happening was every city would do their own photos, and then you'd have to know someone who knew someone, who had an intern, who had done a photo shoot to get that Dropbox link, and the photos probably weren't licensed or legalist. And it, the way that we dealt with creative assets was just a mess. So I, yeah, I asked uh, the head of design. I asked kind of my boss at the time, the head of Asia. I said, you know, maybe for me to go do head of photography. And the head of design was like, absolutely. Like we desperately need someone. You'd be perfect for it because he knew that I liked photography. He knew that I understood what cities needed at Uber. Um, I even talked to the CEO of you know, Trav and he was like, yes, I think this is great. We need more better visual storytelling. Um, I think Uber was like, Uber is an incredibly personal business. You know, everybody, people, when they, you know, when you ride, it was impacting humans all over the planet, but all of our design assets were very tech oriented, you know, like maps and lines and we kind of had this real tech kind of design aesthetic. So I, I took on this role as head of photography, tried to one, organize everything to get a lot more photos for people with people of different races and looks that better mirrored then thirdly, tried to uh, do a lot more storytelling with to get photos that real people on the platform and kind of make that a bit more.
0: Is your photography still being used right now, to, to you Lou? It is. It is.
1: Yeah. Like if you, uh, I mean, there were a couple things. Like one is just if you let's see, if you I'm uh, going to investor like if you go to like the uber uber you know, uh, probably half the photos are those I took. Uh, so if you go to uber.com or like investor.uber.com, like the different websites, the photos I took are kind of all over that or the photos that I hired people to take. Um, the other thing we did was one of the projects was it was like this, uh, driver story project where we, me and two other photographers would take photos of drivers all around the world and interview them. And we created these like billboard type screens that would have a photo of them, sometimes a photo of their family or something like that. And then a quote from them where they would say something about why they, what Uber meant. And I got control over all the conference room screens at Uber, um, globally. So every day I'd put up a new driver from a new city and history for the entire company to see. And that became really important because Uber went through a, uh, what I think could pretty fairly be called a PR crisis. Um, you know, when the CEO got ousted, and there was just a ton of negative press about Uber. And I think that this... Campaign internally, which just every day showed another person who Uber was having a positive impact for. Um, many employees would tell me like it was one of their favorite things about coming to work would be to see the new driver and it. So I, I think that that was a really impactful uh, thing. Okay,
0: that's so, that sounds very great. And uh, how long have you been doing that? I did, uh, I did that for two years. Yeah, for a year and a half. Years. or two years, yeah. And
1: I, I think I haven't been there for a while. But last time I was there. Those driver stories were still being used on the conference screens. It was really something that I think kind of took on for the long term as something that they liked to uh, tell the story of our company. And it wasn't just internally; anybody who comes to a meeting. You know, we ran a couple billboard campaigns in different cities. So it was, uh, yeah, I think it was pretty well.
0: And then uh, to get back to your uh, previous uh, uh, one-year cliff and four-year vesting, uh, that was five years. So uh, uh, how did that go? Because you're not a dober anymore.
1: Yeah, so I think um, I was still motivated to stay because Uber did do a thing where after you hit your four years, to keep people there, they started buying your stock back from you, and once a month, mu- and once a month they would buy back like one percent of your stock, and they would do it for two to three years. Um, and you know, we had no idea if we'd ever like. I mean, we assumed we would, but obviously now, really, but we didn't know when that would be. We didn't know if we'd get liquidity. You know, the company was very unprofitable at the time. So who knew what would happen? So the chance to actually get liquidity was something that I wanted to stick. With. So that was kind of the financial motivation to stay, even though I had already been. Um, so I did stay for two and a half years. I think that program ended after a few years. And at that point, you know, the CEO who hired me, he got fired. And uh, friends from early days had left. And it, uh, I still love working there. But like there wasn't the financial motivation. The community was totally new. And I just, on extremely, extremely good terms with the company, just to say.
0: okay, And because that's, you build a lot of that company together with the people that you said uh, earlier. So, yeah, you might maybe even could consider it a little bit uh, part of your baby. At least that, that period that you worked there was uh, a huge part of your life. How how easy was it to let that go? Like, I, I, I can imagine, like, did you, like, after you made the decision, you just sat at home for it? Uh, Two months doing nothing, or did you already have something else lined up?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, so much of kind of like what we had created was was getting torn down. I'd say because you know when the CEO left, you know the CEO it, it, this was a, a place where the CEO really experienced. So when you get a new CEO, like you know, for better or for worse, but it was that that like thing that I, that that for me was such a special place and time was just had moved on already um, mm-hmm. and most of the, the colleagues who I'd gotten close with had moved on already so I think yeah so that I, that decision was in some ways kind of already pay-fay. Um and I like it and I, I just mean that in the sense that like that that aspect of of this thing that we loved left um, so I, what I did was I, I joined a cryptocurrency company um, and it was based in Hong Kong, um, and it was run by a few friends of mine. So I was like, oh, you know, it seems like a interesting up and coming industries. You know, kind of the last Bitcoin boom. I'm sorry, 2018. Yeah, like the last Bitcoin boom. Um, so I joined that company. Uh, yeah, yeah so, that, so I did have that lined up. But I only stayed there for like three to six months.
0: I know now that you're now doing a lot of uh, coaching and counseling, right? Uh, you're not at the cryptocurrency uh, company anymore. So at one point, yeah, you decided to do something totally different. What was for you the motivator or the instigator to, to start doing it? So the, the cryptocurrency company, I, you know, I enjoyed.
1: I mean, one of the great perks was that it was a block away for, you know, half a mile from my house. So I could walk to work after, when I was doing the head of photography role, that that was based in San Francisco and I lived in Hong Kong. So I like it, you know, I, I had a son, like there was just a lot of different factors that like made this kind of pragmatically, a nice transition. But as soon as I got there, I realized that I actually did not believe in the product. you know. And I think after coming from Uber, which was a place wholeheartedly could sell people on what we were doing and really kind of married myself to the company for six, seven years to go to this industry where like when people would come in and interview for me, interview with me and be like, why should I leave a job to come work here? I like just couldn't sell the product. Like if I did, I'd have to be incredibly phony. And I think part of the great thing about Uber was like, it was extremely authentic. You know, My pitch there was real and I believed in it and I thought it was a great idea for people to join and it was easy for me to get excited about it. So to go to this place where, while I love the people, while I love walking to work, I like could not honestly sell the product. I was like, this is just not good. So I, uh, again, on very good terms, you know, spent, this, I think I resigned after three or four months and stuck around for six Left on good terms, but it just like was going to be. Um, so that was that step, and then that that was kind of like after that there was a bit of a, a bit of a opening. You know, it was like I'd spent the past fifteen years of my life with very high energy, high stress, high reward jobs, and suddenly had nothing to do. Um, so that was yeah, it was a, that was a pretty big transition. Had to figure out how to jump into a new job quickly. Um, but a couple, two of the things that I always wanted to be better was um, coding. I had done computer science in college and kind of wanted to get I did a boot camp. And then the other thing was psychology, mentoring, counseling, working with people who are struggling with things, working with people in business. Um, so, I, so those were two things I did. I did the coding boot camp and I started getting a certificate.
0: Okay. Okay. And then, uh, so basically at that point, you started your own accounting and canceling uh, uh, company, which is also, yeah, from scratch, a, a startup. Um, uh, how did you get your first client? Yeah. So I do counseling and coaching. And the way
1: I do it is through, um, I mean, there are two things. One is I, I went through this program called Transcend, uh, and they helped you find clients. So the program was quite good, building really, that. And the second thing was, I basically just told a bunch of friends I was doing it and um, and five or six of them had friends who they thought would benefit. So those friends, they just connected with me um, and I got into kind of like a coaching with, with five or six people. And after I got those five or six people, like I, I have not tried to expand the business with them. Although now I'm building out uh, my kind of doing, uh, I'm still a trainee there. I'm still kind of the website couple a couple
0: other things that kind of put a stake in the ground a little bit this- okay and um, I can at that point indeed imagine that you that you base your advice a lot of the experience that you had previously with working of course with thousands and thousands of people when when, uh, when especially when you were expanding uber or, or all over the world what was one of the most interesting thing now in hindsight that you learned from Talking to those thousands and thousands and hiring those thousands and thousands of people and onboarding a lot of uh, drivers uh, for that. Like, what, what was probably like what you now use when you're coaching and, and, and talking to, say, captains of industry and, and, and they're talking about their staff, etc.? Are, are there any things there that you use on a daily basis? Yeah, I'd say one of the things, and I
1: think this was true at, at Goldman Center, is I was always, uh, and I see it with the clients now, is how much. People get stuck in their resentment um, and worries uh, about their role and how long they're going to survive for at a company um, and how secure they are in their own job. Um, and I find like people get really, really stuck in that space and that mindset where for companies, um, and that, you know, and when a, a boss is worried that they're not doing well enough compared to their peers, they impart that anxiety on the people who. And then those people can feel that boss's anxiety and they start modeling themselves after that. So, so much of, I think the coaching that I do is trying to get people to, to one, to understand what's driving the people around them. You know, I think we often, oh, my boss hates me. Whereas it could very well just be that the boss, um, yeah, that boss is insecure and that boss is, is worried about their own job and they're kind of imparting that on you. As well. Getting people to identify that and to realize like, how would I act if I had no insecurities? How would I act if I weren't resentful? how to act if I weren't bitter, that I didn't, and trying to be that person. Um, and I, I find a lot of people can really kind of, some of these negative stories can really live in their heads for a long time, just airing them out with someone else, trying to put them in their place, let that not be the driver of your behavior, like really be motivated by what's best for you and what's best can really set people apart because it's actually so infrequent. Uh, I was always amazed at both companies. People spent more time competing with their, their colleagues and their peers than they did with their competitors. And had much more anxiety about their position relative to their peers within their own company than they did about their company's position relative to competitors in the marketplace. and how much of a company is actually hurt because your people aren't making the shareholders as well as well off making your customers as well off but are more um and i i saw that all the time at uber and um, and i see it all the time in my coaching and just trying to help people air that out has been i think
0: really valuable okay. Mm-hmm. But what is quite often given advice that you hear going around but you don't agree with? Hmm.
1: What is common advice that I hear a lot but I don't agree with? I have I'd have to I'd say there's there's probably a lot but I'd have to think about. It. I mean this is yeah I I think it's very hard. I, I one thing that I've like increasingly learned Uh, through coaching. And one of the, is that it's, it is extremely hard to get advice, to give advice. I think that people want that person who's going to tell them exactly what to do. And I think it's extreme, like, it's very, very rare um, that someone can tell you exactly what to do. And one of the first things that my, like one of the guys I learned from as a coach said is stop thinking you have this secret sauce that you're going to give your client this amazing advice based on your experience. That's going to make it work for them. Like, you you don't really have that secret sauce you know and no one does you know and a lot of you know and I, I so much of of working with people is like i think that people have these ideas stuck in their head where they're like anxious about something and they just think about it all the time and it's like this thing that bounces back and forth in their own brain and allowing people to open that box and just air it in itself is such a service where you don't even need as a coach to come in and tell them what to do because a lot of times uh I think, like, just that process can, can open things up a lot. Now, there, there is kind of a view in coaching to never give advice, and you know, I, I would say that's not my certainly find that, like, sometimes talking about my experiences, you know, and what I learned working with a super alpha success-oriented founder, what I learned about that, like, how to, how to work in that space can be constructive for people, but when you position it as advice, it rarely, rarely lands. And I think a, a, good, a good way to think about that is think about all the time people have tried to give you advice and how frequently your first response was, interesting, but you don't really get me. You know, that's, that's much more common than someone saying, that one piece of advice changed my life forever. <laughs> you know, much more common is it betrays that people don't actually understand exactly what you want you to go through. So I think you have to be sensitive to that as a, as a
0: coach. And what's something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? Hmm. Maybe you're a gourmet chef in your spare time, or,
1: um, I mean, one thing that's like easy is that I'm a type one diabetic. So I've, yeah, you know, I've had diabetes since I was seventeen. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that is very much a part of me. I like think about being a diabetic all the time. But yeah, you know, I think sometimes people will see that, and be like, "Whoa, I, I, I didn't." Yeah, you know, certainly a vulnerability that I have that's very much a part of me that I think uh, don't i always know about. And I'd say one thing that I would say is with the coaching, um, I think there's this assumption that I want to work with like executives and figure out how to make entrepreneurs awesome. And to me, that's often less interesting than helping kind of people who are not CEOs just kind of deal with the things they're dealing with. Um, I'm like, in a lot of ways, less interested in the CEO well, trotted market. I'm interested in just talking to people who are struggling with things that they don't have time and trying to work with them through that. I, I think that assumption that everyone wants to be this executive coach and make an entrepreneurs awesome and amazing—it's um, a little bit less of what I'm interested in. with a, a, a master's degree in counseling, which kind of attends a little bit more towards depression and anxiety and kind of rhythm. Really, so I'm, I'm kind of interested in both. Uh, okay.
0: And if there's one thing you want people to take away from this talk, what would it be?
1: Hmm. I, I mean, w- w- one thing that I. One thing that I think about often is 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 really trying to make people find their authenticity. You know, really trying to figure out like what is it that you, like what are you doing because you think you're supposed to do? What are you getting worked up about because you think because of an insecurity? Like you wanna you wanna do this because this will make some someone else something of you. One of one of the things that kind of a mentor of mine once, who are you thinking of? Who are you trying to? Whose approval are you trying to win? with the decisions you make? And it was a super interesting question. And this guy who had been, a, been a, a partner at Goldman Sachs said, I still wonder what the CEO of Goldman when I left the company would think with everything I did. Um, and chances are that person doesn't care to You know, maybe they, but chances are they really don't care. And for me, I, I thought that was always interesting. And I think it's always interesting for people like, who am I trying to, who am I making these decisions for? And like, is that something I can actually control? Because a lot of times people are working for something they have really very little control over. Um, so I think kind of figuring out what it is that motivates you, what it is that you enjoy, and trying to zoom in on that. What What are the times in your life you've truly felt fulfilled and how can you try to emulate that as opposed to trying to win someone's approval? Um, because oftentimes the people whose approval we want to win, we want to win it because we can't, you know, they're people for whom we're thinking about giving people their approval, kind of the space they're in. So, yeah, like what is it that motivates you? What is it that, uh How can you um, solve for the times that you've really felt fulfilled and try to emulate that? Like, I think that's worth thinking
0: about. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for your valuable insight and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. For the listeners, although the rating system of podcasts is hideous, if you like this Maya Culpa series, you can rate this podcast with five stars and the motivation for the makers. I want to thank Mizuo Crowdbrain for being the venue sponsor of this episode, and I also want to thank Kopey Ventures for making this series possible. If you have any suggestions on speakers, uh, let us know. Uh, Contact details are in the show notes. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful. Uh, Thanks, Jeff.